love, and hope still exist in this world. There's good things in the bad, no matter how difficult it can be. Look for the positive. Find that silver lining and hold on to it with all the might and that you can that you can muster up. Life is worth living. Do you need encouragement to turn tragedies into your own triumphant life story? If so, this podcast is for you. Listen to powerful guests who have persevered through challenges so you can gain strength to build your championship life. The host of Professor of Perseverance Podcast, Dr. James Perdue. Hey, 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 come on again. Uh, come on in. Come on in again today. All right, come on in. Here. So, hey, uh, we like this topic uh, we're going to discuss here in just a minute. We're going to use this to gain some information that's going to help us get through difficult times to get us get through and move on to the next step forward. Hey, whenever we learn something that's going to help us get through some situations, learn, teach that to someone else, pass it forward so they can help someone else as well. Today, our topic is going to talk about uh, human trafficking, and we have an expert in that field. So thank you for coming in to the Professor of Perseverance podcast. I'm Dr. James Perdue, and welcome to the show Amanda Blackwood. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I am really excited to be here with you today. Well, we're excited that you're here as well uh, from here. Now, I discussed this the other day when I had a podcast that people continue praying for the this submarine going down, missing on the Titanic voyage uh, expo for people uh, I have seen right before coming on here with Amanda that uh, uh, a debris field has been found, which is not really good news when it's a debris field. Uh, but let's pray for the best and and go from there. And you know we can only do our part and from that part forward. So, all right, Amanda. All right, not to change the subject too much, but let's change the subject. Okay, <laughs> so. You're an expert in human trafficking, and I'm assuming that means you're on the wrong side of it. <laughs> uh, that would be correct. I am definitely against human trafficking. Uh, I am a well, what, 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 what I mean against it, I'm assuming you experienced it on the wrong side of it. Right. I, I mean, I'm not on the side where not on the side where people, hey, you know, no, it, you were really <laughs> involved in it. Is what I'm saying, yeah, right. So I'm a subject matter expert based on my lived experience. Mm -hmm. Yes, there you go. That's easy for you to say. <laughs> I've been saying it for a few years now, I suppose. <laughs> there you go. All right, so um, let's go ahead and uh, jump in here, and uh, you just go ahead and. Put us in where we need to start with you. So the first thing that I want to do is make sure that we establish what it is that human trafficking actually means. We have this, this experience in our world of having these Hollywood movies that are flooded at us and these news stories that pop up. And we have a skewed perspective of what human trafficking is. In that we misunderstand it most of the time. So the Department of Homeland Security defines it as the use of force, fraud, or coercion 
to obtain labor or sex acts from another person. So if you notice, there's no mention of money. So human trafficking does not equal prostitution or vice versa. There's no mention of transporting a person. So human smuggling is a separate issue from human trafficking. Okay. There's no mention of kidnapping. And in fact, only 15% approximately of all victims are people who were snatched off of the streets and kidnapped and then forced into human trafficking. And one of the other things that we need to address is all these news stories. So when you see this, this big bust that happens where 167 people are arrested in a human trafficking sting operation, you have to ask yourself where these numbers are coming from. So if they're arresting the prostitutes, which occasionally and quite often are victims of human trafficking because there is this huge overlap area, they are further victimizing these victims and giving them rap sheets for things that they have been forced, frauded, or coerced into doing against their will. But they're also arresting the Johns, not the pimps, not the people who are managing mm. and forcing these women, not these traffickers. But when they're, when they're arresting these Johns, they're getting out with basically nothing more than a slap on the wrist because the fine for purchasing sex from a person is about the same as driving over the limit line at a red light. So when we start to break this down, we have to understand that what we're seeing in movies like Taken and in these sensationalized news stories are so blown out of proportion that so many survivors of human trafficking don't even realize that, that, that you don't that realize something's happening with them. For a very long time. There huh? was um, uh, well, yeah, the where they over dramatize, uh, dramat dramatize everything. It, it doesn't seem that what other people may be going through, they're going, well, that's not what's happening to me. So it can't can't be as bad, or it can't be as bad for them. Yeah, like you're saying. So um, yeah. One thing I learned years ago, I don't like the movies anymore where they holler based right. on a true story because they only make it based on a true story very little. They blow everything up to try to keep everybody's attention. Right, exactly. The more sensational it is, the more people are going to pay attention to it. And it's actually damaging the fight against human trafficking mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Yeah. So from my own personal story, as is with most victims of human trafficking, we're no strangers to early childhood abuse also. So we grow up building these neurosynapses in our brain of thinking that these certain things in our lives are normal or exactly what is going to happen for the rest of our lives. And we build these patterns. The first time I was molested, I was only four, as far as I can remember, and it was my older brother. He was seven at the time, so I don't blame him. There was something that he should not have been aware of that he was mm -hmm. doing. And he was, I think, trying to process what something that had happened uh, or had witnessed. He didn't understand it. He yeah. also doesn't, well, claims he doesn't remember it, but I don't know, which also is a sign of trauma if he doesn't yeah. remember most of his childhood. So I grew up knowing that my body didn't belong to me. I was molested again at 12, again at 13 by an uncle, again at 14, 15, 16. I was raped at 17 by somebody I thought was my best friend. Hmm. So 
By the time I was 18 years old, I had been running away for three years and just wanted to get out of there. I wanted to get away from home. I wanted to escape all of these horrible people that I had been around. My dad was physically abusive. My mother was mentally and emotionally abusive. And other than them, it was my brother and I. That was my whole family. My dad was in the military, so we were isolated from any other family. I didn't really see grandparents or uncles or aunts or cousins. I didn't grow up with a big family. Mm -hmm. That was all I had. I just wanted to get away. So I left it two days after I turned 18. And I left the state, floated around for a while. And because of these patterns that I had created and I had built because of all of the abuse, I continually sought out new relationships. I didn't have the education really to be able to self yet. I had dropped out of high school. I didn't even have a GED until I was 19. So here I was at 18 years old living in Phoenix and completely lost in the world and just looking for wherever I could stay. And I ended up dating a man and living with him. He was more than twice my age. He was in his late 30s, I believe. I was 18. And I thought I was in love with this guy. He was a good-looking Italian guy with curly hair and bright blue eyes. You know, I just thought he was just everything. Mm -hmm. And while I was living with him, I I had become kind of his house servant while also working at a 7-Eleven where they didn't ask if I had a high school diploma. And he asked me constantly to be accommodating. He taught me early on to be a bit of a servant to him, to bring him remote and to cook dinner and to go change the channel when he wanted me to or asked me to without hesitation. And one day a buddy of his came over and asked, he said, hey, I'm going to go to Las Vegas for my birthday weekend. Would you two like to go? And my then boyfriend asked me to leave the room. They were going to have a private conversation. After a little while, they called me back into the room. And the way it was presented to me was my boyfriend couldn't go on the trip because he had to work, but that he thought I might enjoy it and that I should go on this trip for just a weekend in Las Vegas. And I'd been to Las Vegas before. I knew I couldn't gamble because I was still just 18. But I did know that there was that roller coaster on the outside of New York, New York, that I had already been on once. And I loved that thing. Mm -hmm. Couldn't wait to get back on the ride. I wanted to go and play in the arcades and just be a kid in Las Vegas for a little while. So we got on the plane. And before we left, my boyfriend told me, I need you to be as accommodating to him as you are for me. And I didn't really understand what that meant at the time. I did once we got there. So his buddy held down to my ID for the plane uh, trip just to make sure that I didn't lose it because apparently I couldn't be trusted with my own ID. Uh (laughs) We got to the hotel and there were some palms that were being greased in the lobby. The hotel staff was advised that they were um, allowed to bring me room service once a day when I called in. But when they brought it, they were to drop it off outside of the room and leave before I was allowed to collect it. They were not allowed to ask questions about who I was and what I was doing there. And when we got up to the room, I was told that I did not have a room key and would not be receiving a room key. So if I left the room at all, I would not be able to get back in and I would be abandoned in Las Vegas without any identification. Hmm. So over the period of 52 hours, 
this guy would go downstairs and gamble and get drunk and come upstairs and rape me or molest me and then go back downstairs and gamble for a little bit longer, maybe come upstairs and sleep for a little while. And it just became this vicious cycle over the next 52 hours. Yeah. Wow. I knew I couldn't leave. You know, if I left, I would have been homeless in Las Vegas with no identification at all. If I stayed, then I would have an opportunity to get back to Arizona to at least collect my things and get my ID back. Yeah. I felt like I was being held hostage, and basically I was. Well, basically, yes. Right. But if you think about back that, that definition again, the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain labor or sex acts from another person, that's exactly what that was. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that for years because I didn't know the definition of human trafficking. This was back in 1998. So it wasn't really something that we were talking about yet. So eventually we got back to Arizona and I split. I floated around the country. I found my way out to Arkansas where my mother's family was from. And while I was there, I met a man who, again, was twice my age. And he wanted to marry me. And I thought, this is a great way to go into hiding. I can change my last name. I am away from these people that have been pursuing me and following me since I left them in Arizona. I didn't realize at the time that the people in Arizona had ties to organized crime on the East Coast. I was in fear for my life. But this husband turned out to be abusive. And I left him. I'd injured myself at work. I was working at a horse farm at the time. I had gotten my GED and was grooming horses, which was the greatest job. Oh, my gosh. I loved it. Oh, I would love that. Big old gentle oh. giant. Oh, my gosh. They were straight Egyptian Arabian horses. Some of the most gorgeous Ooh, yes. animals on the planet. Loved that job. And I fell out of the hayloft one day and I tore cartilage in my knee really bad. And they ended up having to put me in a truck and drive me to the hospital for an MRI right that moment. It was a bizarre experience having all of these employers <laughs> standing around me uh, when I was getting the news from the doctor that I was going to need surgery. I could still walk on it. I needed to be gentle with it, but I was going to have to take it easy and I needed to get surgery. My boss, the owner of the horse farm, found out that my ex-husband had been abusing me because when you're in a hospital, you're in hospital gowns and stuff, and they saw the bruises. And when they witnessed this, that this guy was a uh, Vietnam vet, and he was a really good guy, and he abuse, and he he kind of recognized internal damage. He knew there was something wrong. Mm-hmm. And we sat down and he said, you need to get out of there. I have a guest house. It's all yours. You can live on the horse farm until we get your knee surgery. But we need to figure out a game plan. We need to figure out an action for you. So the plan that he and I put together was I would go down to Florida where my dad's mother lived. I was going to stay with her while I got my knee surgery done. And then once I got my knee surgery done, he had another horse farm down there in Florida and I would just stay in Florida and work for him there. I had a whole plan lined out that was going to be for the rest of my life as far as I was concerned. Mm -hmm. And I got down to Florida. It had all been arranged with my grandmother. And apparently my family found out that I had left my ex-husband and they called my grandmother and told her that if she took me in, they would never speak to her again. 
So I got to Daytona Beach in the bus station at about 10.30 at night, and I called my grandmother on the payphone to tell her, hey, I'm here. I'm ready to come be picked up. I had $5 left to my name. And her husband, my dad's stepfather, answered the phone and said, we're not coming to get you. You're on your own. Good luck and goodbye, and hung up. I was devastated. I had a plan for my life. This didn't work into my plan. Suddenly I'm homeless. So I sat down on the curb and I was just crying my eyes out. A young couple came up to me. He was 22 and she was 15, but she looked older than that. And they told me, you know, we're sorry for all of this stuff that's happening to you. And this is terrible. We have a place where you can stay. And we will absolutely give you a place to stay until you can get on your feet. What they really meant was they were going to give me a place to stay until they could find the highest bidder. Because they I figured, sold- I figured something was up here with the age difference with the man and woman. That there was something going on. Yeah. Right. Right. Wow. They sold me to a young man named Esteban. And when this happened, it wasn't to obtain labor or sex acts. And it wasn't, um, it wasn't, it doesn't quite fit the definition of human trafficking. But for a long time, I thought that was the only instance of human trafficking that I had ever experienced because I had been sold as a slave. Mm -hmm. So I ended up lost for three and a half hours with no food, no water, no bathroom facilities of any kind. And if I had not spent the entire childhood between the 80s and 90s watching old reruns and new episodes of MacGyver with Richard Dean Anderson, I probably wouldn't have survived. MacGyver, he's the man. (laughs) I've written to him and told him that he saved my life, and I've never heard back, but I have to trust that he just knows. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Give him a toothbrush and a toothpick, he'll get through anything. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Give me a paper clip and a rubber band, and I'm right on his heels. (laughs) That's right, that's right. (laughs) So I got out of there, floated around for a while again, was homeless for a bit. I worked multiple jobs. At one point, I was working 24 hours a day. So I would work as a telephone operator from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., get off work at 4 and go over to Sears where I worked in the ladies' um, costume jewelry until the store closed at 11 o'clock at night and then borrow a car from somebody. I still didn't have a driver's license, but I would borrow a car from somebody and deliver pizzas until 2 in the morning get off work at two in the morning and go to a place where I had secured myself myself a job as an overnight nanny for a single dad who was working nights. And I would go and stay there and watch over the kid and then get up again at eight in the morning, be back at work at my full-time job. I was literally working 24 hours a day. Wow. Not getting enough sleep. But it was enough to get me on my feet enough that I was able to move on with my life. And I did go back to Arkansas for a little while. And then I found my way out to California. I was determined that I was going to make my own way. And working 24 hours a day, I had proved to myself that I could do it. I got my GED. I moved out to California. I decided that I wanted to be the assistant to somebody very important, and that was going to be my life's calling. 
I never was able to reach out and get a hold of the man that owned the horse farm again. Never got a job at the horse farm. And I had to move on with my life. So here it is, 2004. I'm 24 years old, living in California, trying my best just to get an office job and really just barely scraping by getting waitressing jobs because I only had a GED. I didn't have any actual education. It was hard to get a job then. I started modeling, just kind of trying to make a little bit of money on the side. All of a sudden, I was picked up and put on uh, Alias and Will and Grace, and I modeled for Harley Davidson, and I did all these really cool things. But I kept all right, them. awesome. Yeah. You say Will, say Will and Grace. Yeah, the final season of Will and Grace. Wow. Sure. <laughs> the final yeah. season of network television, Will and Grace, not streaming. Yeah. So and it was it was so much fun. I was offered a reoccurring role on the show. I mean, I just that chapter of my life, I had so much fun and I learned so much. I explored constantly. I knew LA like the back of my hand after a while. It was great. But I was still lonely. So that was about the time that internet dating became a thing. You know, people had been doing it for a few years before that, but that's when it really kind of blew up. Mm-hmm. All these different dating apps, right? Got one of them, and I met this man who was too far away for me to have a relationship with, but he was intelligent and charming and funny, and he was a police officer. And I just saw him as somebody who was safe that I could talk to, and I told him all these different things about my life, and we became these long distance pen pals for years. And this man, eventually he came over to visit me. I went over to go and visit him. And we decided after seven years that we had fallen in love. And I was thinking, you know, this is, this is great. He's just asked me to marry him. I'm going to get a fiancé visa and move to Scotland to be with him. Okay. The lands of kings and queens and castles and folklore and, oh, my gosh. It, it was my princess fairy tale come true. This is exactly what every little girl who grows up watching Disney movies dreams of. Being swept off their feet by this charming prince and being carried off to the castle, right? That was going to be my life. I mean, his castle was a, a little duplex home, but it was really cute. Yeah. And I liked there you go. I, I liked the kid. And I, it was, it was going to be a great life. And we went through with the visa process. I left my, at that point, I had an actual career. I was a director of public safety and security for six different properties in LA County. I was making a livable wage. I had just gotten an $11,000 a year raise. I had just secured raises for all of my employees. And I was doing really well. And I gave all of that up, sold my car, and got rid of my apartment to load up a single suitcase and fly to Scotland to be with this guy. Took him seven years to get me there. Once he got me there, it took him seven days to start trafficking me. Wow. It broke my heart. Seven year payoff. Yeah. Wow. He was in it for the long game. Yeah, and well, I obviously so, yeah. I wouldn't <laughs> I wasn't expecting your story to go there. I mean, I'm thinking it's gonna be the final, yeah, the Cinderella story now, and she's got her prince and 
how life is going great now is what I was expecting. Oh, I wasn't expecting this turn, this turn right here. Wow. Right. Kind of like a gut punch, right? Yo, more than that. Yeah. It's more than a gut punch. Yeah, yeah. You finally, someone finally done built this trust up with someone. And, and, and of course love is in the air and man, I wasn't expecting this. Okay. <laughs> go ahead. So, Within the first seven well, days. Let me ask this question. You are writing, uh, you have written a book about your life, have you? If not, <laughs> you need to, you need to be, you need to be writing this out. Again, it's going to, it's going to help other people in the future. So my autobiography is called Custom Justice. There you go. And that talks about the whole history of everything from starting when I was four, going through each different incident of trafficking. Uh, the, Florida incident is more detailed in a separate book, but I have a total of 13 books. My most recent just dropped on the 1st of June. Okay. And all of this since 2018. I have been just a prolific writer. It's been great. Uh, it's also been incredibly healing. I so, guess you do all right with the GED, except, huh? I did. I did. <laughs> with the GED. I decided, finally not to, I decided finally not to let it hold me back. That's right. You know, I was allowing it to limit me. I can't do this because I don't have this. Mm -hmm. I, I, that's not who I am. We're and, we're our we're we're our our own worst critics. You know, so <laughs> there's other people who say no, 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 but we're the ones that believe into it, or we're the ones that's already believing into it, and we don't do certain things because we're worried about failure. And so we'd rather, we'd rather sit in our little old mud puddle like a pig wallowing around in mud than to rock the boat and do something different. Yeah, we're, on our, we're our own worst enemies. Oh, yeah. But people would rather rely on uh, disappointment than on hope because one is guaranteed when the other is not. Exactly, yes. You know, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And that was me for a very long time. But... And we'll get back to Scotland here in just a second, but I discovered a few years ago that only 2% of all victims of human trafficking get out with theirs. 2%. They, they get out all of these, the whole situation? Yeah. Most of them don't wow. survive. Two, I, I can believe that. The majority uh, don't survive or suicide. Right. And suicide rate is huge. Yeah, yeah. I, I can see that, that they finally are tired of it and the way to get out is suicide or, again, they get beaten to death or whatever else. Yeah, I, yeah, I can see that. But I wouldn't, wow. Uh, I, didn't, I, I wouldn't realize that number had been that low, though, at 2%. But I'm not surprised at it, though, either. Yeah. And we also have to take into account that we're mixing in other numbers from other parts of the world, too. This is not just oh, a yeah, U.S. Yeah, yeah. statistic. This is a worldwide statistic. Yeah, so we're yeah, also exactly. talking about uh, child soldiers and stuff in Africa. You know the mortality rate is going to be huge there. Yeah. Yeah. So, wow. Let me ask a question here as we're going along here now. It's, what made you stay so strong to go to the next thing? It had to be more than just hope that things are going to get better. There was always that underlying factor of hope. But what it comes down to was I didn't know I had any other options. Mm. 
Yeah. So not knowing what your options are is the same thing as not having options. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. And the choices were live or die. And I fought tooth and nail to stay alive. And yeah. that meant putting up with things that shouldn't have happened and just getting through it from one day to to, to survive, yes. Yeah. Okay. Wow. All right, go ahead. <laughs> I, I'm I'm just uh, amazed with all the. I mean, I'm in I'm in for the long run right now. <laughs> so in Scotland, we'll get back over there. Uh, the first week that I was there, I absolutely loved it. There was a park really close to where I was living. Um, it was tra- called Strathclyde Park. And in this park, there were Roman baths built in 149 AD, around the same time as Hadrian's Wall, because the, the Romans just couldn't control the Scots, so they built a wall to keep them out of England. <laughs> but they had built Roman baths up there first. And I used to go down to this park and sit on the wall of these Roman baths to sit and eat a picnic lunch. I was surrounded by this incredible history, and it really was like walking into a storybook and it's like, like Alice walking through the looking glass. I was on the other side of the world. I was experiencing things and seeing things that I never would have seen or done otherwise. Mm-hmm. But then when the trafficking started, I was pretty much set on, I need to get out of here. Yeah. I need to get out of here now. It was only, it was less than a month. Um, he had already had my driver's license and passport and my credit card, debit card, all of that stuff. And he had it locked up in a small safe. In less than a month, I had made sure that I plied him with enough alcohol one night because of the first trafficking incident where I was taught to be really accommodating. I learned Mm -hmm. how to get somebody to drink a lot. (laughs) And I got him to drink a lot one night during the abuse that was occurring. And I talked him into giving me back my identification stuff. And it was... The, the, the way that I spun it was I wanted that stuff back so that I could go to the bank and extract all of my money and close my bank account and give him the money so that we could actually spend it. Because otherwise, it was just going to sit in there in the bank forever and just be useless. Yeah. But really, the plan was to go on the computer and buy myself an emergency flight out of there and get out. Yeah. And I couldn't afford the first flight. I only had about $2,000 in my in my bank. And the first flight out for the next day was, you know, some astronomical stupid number. And the flight out the second day was still $5,000. And I had to keep changing the date and looking, what, what can I afford? What's yeah, the first yeah, yeah. I can afford? And it was five days out. There was a flight that would cost almost every penny of what I had, except for $11. And I figured that $11, I don't care how much money I have when I get back. I've got friends out there. Maybe somebody will let me stay with them. That $11 can buy me a lot of ramen noodles in the meantime. Amen. Yes. Ramen noodles are good. <laughs> yeah. They're life-saving in situations. I like, like I, yeah, I can see that now. Yeah. Because I used to hear old Dave Ramsey would tell people they need to <laughs> eat beans and rice and rice and beans and ramen noodles. So yep. when, when he's trying to get them to uh, control their debt. <laughs> so oh, yeah. yes. All right. Go ahead. <laughs> So, um, so during that five days, are you hiding from him? Are you still, yeah, so you're, you're still where, okay. So you're just waiting for the five days out 
to make a getaway. Right. There's a train station not too far from his home. So my plan was... Okay, so you, that's, what, that's what I was wondering. When you were on the computer looking, uh, have you already gotten out? And now you're trying to avoid him for those five days. But you're still in the house with him. Yeah. Um, just doing everything on the computer. And then uh, you finally, on that fifth day, like I said, you got the money. The price is right. Let's hit it and get it. Right. I, I, I bought the flight. Yeah. But I had to wait the five days still. But yeah. it was January, February in Scotland, and the snowflakes were as large as the palm of my hand. Mm-hmm. So if I had left, I would have been homeless there in Scotland in the freezing cold, and I probably would have died from exposure. Yeah. So my options were, just like in Las Vegas, put up with what it was that I had to go through. And I'd already been through so much in my life starting when I was four. Surely I can put up with five more days of it, I yeah, thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that night that I had gotten the ID from him, the abuse was so severe from another couple that had he had invited to come over to molest and rape me that I ended up with a kidney infection. Hmm. So five days later, when the flight left, I was not on it. I was, I believe, in the hospital. Oh, wow. Okay. And I lost the money. It was a non-refundable yeah. flight. Wow. Okay. So I had $11 left to my name and I had to figure out what I was going to do and how I was going to survive from that. $11 doesn't get you very far in any country, really. <laughs> so I kind of lost hope for a little while and I got very depressed. I one day got out of the house and went down to an old church that was built in the 1600s. And I sat down next to a headstone that the name had been so worn off from the elements that all you could see was the date. You could kind of make out where it said 1776 and that's American independence, Mm -hmm. right? That was the year that we claimed independence from England. And I took this as a sign. Yeah. I'm going to claim my independence. And I sat down next to that grave and that, that headstone covered the only person that was my friend that day. I sat there and I prayed that somebody would come and find me. And nobody came. And finally, I got up after talking to the person under the ground forever. I I can only guess that it was a guy, but there's no way that I could possibly know. Mm -hmm. And I left him there. And I got up and I sat on the steps of the church where people driving by the church could see me sitting there. And again, I prayed that somebody would come and find me. Somebody would see me. And nobody came. And when I left the house that morning... I had been a smoker at the time and I took with me one cigarette because I knew that if nobody found me, this was going to be my last cigarette. And I went to the train station. And when I was sitting on the platform with my cigarette, I pulled up my matches and I lit my cigarette and a man walked out onto the platform and he asked me for a light. So I handed him my book of matches and I told him he could keep them. And I wanted him to ask me why. You know, are you going to quit smoking? You know, anything. Yeah. Uh-huh. Ask me anything. And he didn't ask. Instead, he lit his cigarette and he says, I don't need them either. You can take them back. And he handed me back my matches. I caught that accent. <laughs> I, I I do have fun with the accent. <laughs> <laughs> I caught that. I All right, go ahead. I was there long enough to pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> So while we were standing there, um, he had a little guy, a little boy, 
probably about four years old, that came out onto the platform and reached up and took his daddy's hand. And this little boy looked at me and it was the first time that I can honestly say anybody had actually seen me in months. He looked right through me and his eyes, those were not the eyes of a child. Those were the eyes of somebody who actually saw me and knew that I was in pain. Mm -hmm. And my plan was that I was going to wander down the tracks and commit suicide by train. And it took me about 20 seconds to realize that when I was running, I wasn't running towards the train. I was running back towards my prison. I needed to get back. And I was happy to be going back because I knew if there was something that showed up to prevent me from doing what I had meant, what I tried to do, that there had to be something more for my life. And that's when I got the hope back. It was probably another month after that when I finally got together this plan in my head. And I knew he was a police officer. I knew he knew more about psychology than I did because he'd gone through training and classes. But what he didn't know was that I had been studying it since I was a kid because I wanted to understand these patterns that kept on popping up in my life. I wanted to know about these things. Yeah. They learned a lot about something called Stockholm Syndrome, which has since been rebranded. It's now called trauma bond, trauma bonding. And I made him convince, made him absolutely be convinced that I had devoted myself to him so much and loved him so deeply and so dearly that I would do anything for him. And I reminded him, I'm here on a fiance visa. If I overstay my visa after six months and they find out, I can be kicked out of the UK because of very strict UK laws and never be allowed back in the UK ever again. And that would just be terrible. And you you being a police officer, you could lose your job if anybody found out. And you wouldn't want that. Yeah. But if you send me back to California... I can live there for six months and then return in time for Christmas. And it would be our first Christmas together. Wouldn't it be beautiful? And within two hours, he bought a round trip flight. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Turn the tables. Absolutely. It it helped that I also made sure that his glass was constantly full of whiskey. Uh, I was going to say, (laughs) uh, you was... uh, Pouring some liquid courage and liquid <laughs> denying uh, as well, I was imagining, yes. Yeah. And while I was there, I actually developed a little bit of an alcohol problem myself. I wouldn't say necessarily. Oh, I could, I could see that. Yeah. Uh, to, to cover the pain and to right. get you through the day. I could see that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't even so much the day. It was the incidences of abuse. I was constantly searching for that blackout drunk moment because I didn't Mm -hmm. want to remember it. Yeah. And no matter how much I drank, I just couldn't ever achieve a blackout drunk status. I never got there. And I'm grateful for that now. But because of all the drinking, I do have a little bit of a Swiss cheese memory when it comes to some of the incidences of abuse. I don't remember names. I don't remember dates, but I still remember the things that happened. And I can tell you details about the the people's faces. I could perfectly describe them to a sketch artist. 
Yeah. Every single one of them. Because they're burned into my brain. When somebody does something like this to you, you don't forget them. Ever. And they oh, yeah. still Yeah. Let me ask this question out here. We're getting close to need to, to move on, but uh, this has been a great story. So anybody got a chance to get in your book again? What is it? Uh, what's your book? And my uh, the first autobiography. One yeah, the my first autobiography one is called Custom Justice. It's Custom got my Justice. cover. Yeah. So anybody get a chance? And again, we'll get you here in a minute to promote your uh, website and stuff. Uh, but how, and I know when you reached out to me about being on a podcast that you talk about you use a lot of humor and stuff to keep everything light. And I do the same thing. Uh, we could pour pitiful me. And, and well, I'm not saying what people are going through is not relevant. I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying goof around with it because when you're going through it, it's severe, dramatic, as bad as it can be. But once we have mo- moved on and have built a, a good life, we have realized we passed that. I think it's easier to promote it when you're being positive about it than some, I don't want to hear somebody, I don't care who it is, just, and then the next thing went on and I, you wouldn't have believed this. And I mean, I don't want to hear that. I mean, I want to hear the, I want to, I want to hear the story, but I want to hear the positive on how, you know, getting out of it and the, the, the positive way of doing it, you know, so, yeah, um, how, I mean, obviously you're headstrong, that's for sure, okay? Uh, <laughs> these other people, well, these other people didn't realize that as they're doing things, okay? But were you always uh, as positive and humorous, uh, or did you learn to do that as an escape mechanism, and then it just stayed with you? My first full sentence when I was a child was, I do it by self. There you go. <laughs> there you go. It's a huge part of who I am. And I think a lot of You need to make it a t-shirt. You need to make it a t-shirt. <laughs> it People almost bought... became the book title. <laughs> oh, there you go. So, uh, yeah, need to, need to make a t-shirt of that. Okay. Um and yeah, this this is uh, this is amazing. I, I've interviewed other people who's been into their story of human trafficking, and so, but um, uh, theirs didn't seem to go as long as yours. And like you said, for some reason, well, one reason is these predators they know who to talk to. They know who they can do because he knew he knew. He didn't know it was going to take seven years to get you to Scotland, but something pretty quick got him saying, yeah, this is the girl right here. I just got to get her to convince to come on. And um, so they know they know who to talk to and who to avoid because right. they know they don't have a shot. And like right. you said, the way we're brought up, the environment we're brought up, the experience, we're, sometimes we're attracted to that because we don't know any better. And so if you may have been spilling your guts on what's been happening throughout your life, this guy's going exactly what I'm looking for, you know? And so he, he knew what was going on uh, yeah. from there. And he knew so, all my weaknesses. Yeah, exactly. Cause yeah, you're being so open and honest and he's loving you and you're loving him. And so, yeah, yeah. So, wow. But yeah, these people, they know who to talk to and who to run from, what woman to run from. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, from there. So, 
Well, I want to tell you, we need to, we, we need to go ahead and move on. Uh, we may get a hold of you later and do a part two or something to go from here. But uh, this, this is amazing what you've been through. And I just love that I'm talking to the, I don't say the new and improved you, but the better part of you anyway. Uh, even though you probably, you're probably like me, I'm just guessing. When I first had my injury, I hid my pain because I didn't want my family to know what I was going through. But behind closed doors, I'd cry myself to sleep. Okay. So I'm assuming when you're out with friends or family, you're trying your best to put this big face on to let them not know anything is going on. And so um, uh, eventually we healed from it and was able to go beyond it. So, but I'm glad I got to meet this perspective of you than the younger struggling you. I mean, not to say I wouldn't want to meet you, but uh, I'm just saying, hey, I, man, I don't know if I can stand the uh, story if you were to tell it as you're going through it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes. wow. A lot of people weren't ready to hear it. You know, and if you and do have me, that is on, true. Can, there's, I could probably easily fill another episode with what happened after I escaped. Yeah. yeah. The drama oh, yeah. Stop there just because you get out. It intensifies. It gets worse because then you're hunted and you have to figure out how to deal with it on your own, all while trying to hide and figure out forms of self-defense. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, listen, we're going to plan on a uh, part two. I need to get my thing back here in the back. Click the clapper there. (laughs) Part two we're going to work on one day. We'll get it. We'll get together. Uh, But uh, this has been amazing. So, I mean, go ahead and tell us uh, your website, uh, any other books you want to push or promote. Your newest one, you say, to just come out? Uh, any social media? All right. So my website, easiest one to get to is growthfromdarkness.com. I, there I have all of my books listed, my trauma recovery mentorship, my two different podcasts that I personally host and run. Um, on social media, I'm very active on Facebook, which is facebook.com slash Amanda Blackwood Survivor. Uh, I'm also on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter as at Detailed Pieces. My most recent book called Surviving in the Kitchen is actually a cookbook. And it talks about all the different recipes and all the different creative ways that people can use to be able to heal themselves from the trauma that they're going through by having some kind of a creative outlet, writing, cooking, painting, something that you have some sense of control over. Because we have this need for a sense of control because we feel like we've lost so much control in our lives. It's important to make sure that we have these creative outlets. And these are probably some of the greatest healing tools that I've ever discovered. So that that cookbook, I'm really proud of it. (laughs) And like you're saying, we want to be in control of something. And so when we've lost that, that's why some people get into the cutting why they get into the anorexic or overeating because they know we can control that. I can't control what else is going on, but I can control those. And so, yeah, you're right that people want to be able to control something if they're not controlling their life at the, uh, at the, at the best ability uh, at that time. So, um, and then I'm like you, you mentioned this earlier and go back to it, that uh, your writing is a form of therapy. I agree with that. Even, uh, I, I tell people, I tell people, everybody nowadays needs to write a book. If just a memoir 
if you don't just just if nothing else when your great 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 grandchildren want to know about you someone can say here's a book read about uh, your great 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 granddad and so we just and just go from there uh, you don't have to get out and try to make a million just to to keep uh, your generation and your life alive and they can see why they do the way they do because you're goofy. So, yeah. uh, you know, so everybody needs to write a book. It's just so easy now to get it published, you can self-publish it and get it out. So, but it is, it is a great form of therapy. My first book took me 12 years to write. And that's because I'd write one page and I wouldn't touch it for six months or I'd write a paragraph and come back eight weeks later. And, uh, <laughs> Finally, I decided if you're going to do it, do it, get it done and over with or throw it away. <laughs> and I finally finished it. So, but uh, uh, yeah, it's a great form of therapy as well. Yeah. It's a beautiful, right. creative escape. Too. Exactly. And you don't have to write a book. If you're great at drawing, an artist, make your story go through a, a drawing, you know, through your artwork and you as a child and growing up and what happened and down yeah all through your life and make a book like that it doesn't have to be writing whatever you are best if you're great at singing make your story life into a 10 disc series and singing your song your life out you know so there's multiple ways that you can get that your life story out today so all right amanda we are going to do a part two i this has been great i enjoyed i'm glad again got to meet with you and as we get out uh, everybody else is going to be glad they met you too so Amanda, we know there's people hurting and struggling today. If you can leave us with a positive message to help us get through today, that'd be a blessing. You are already stronger than you can ever possibly imagine. We hear all the time, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger, but that's not true. You have the strength within you already. You just have to dig deep to figure it out. Stop giving credit to the people who have injured or abused you by saying that they're the ones who made you stronger. They didn't make you stronger. They made you more hurt. You made you stronger. That hurt helped you find out how strong you are. Exactly. So, all right, uh, Amanda, thank you again for being here. Anybody that needs a great inspirational story, and again, you can hear how positive she is and everything. And, I mean, I wish you could see the beautiful smile she has uh, while she's doing this. And try it again to make it humorous, light, but again, we know that the situation is so serious and dramatic. Uh, but once we get through it, we don't have to live through the pain again. Now we can live through it knowing we're helping someone else later on. So everybody else, thank you for coming in. I'm Dr. James Perdue. Thank you for coming in to Professor of Perseverance Podcast. Do something today, tomorrow, something next week that's going to help you persevere past your paralysis. Thanks for listening to the Professor of Perseverance podcast. For motivation, inspiration, and encouragement. For more information, go to Facebook at Professor of Perseverance. Visit the website at professorofperseverance.com and view the YouTube channel, Dr. James Perdue, Professor of Perseverance.